0: Hi everyone, it's Will. I've climbed deep into the Bites vault, many, many meters underground, to recover an episode we recorded a while back, but locked away for safekeeping. And now, after long last, you get to hear our special episode, all about debris disks. As a reminder, the next episode, 55, is going to be Milena's last And while we're sad to see her go, we're excited for the next chapter of her adventure. So be sure to listen to our Farewell Milena episode coming up next. In the meanwhile, enjoy this episode about debris disks. Now how the heck do I get out of here? Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy then we sit down with recent astrobites of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune.
1: I'm Melana Rice. I recently finished my PhD at Yale University, where I studied planetary dynamics.
2: And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a pre-doctoral fellow at the Center for Computational Astrophysics, where I study transients and their host galaxies.
0: You're listening to episode 54, Dusting Off the Discs. Our first ever episode was all about discs, and we were so scarred by spending a whole episode on disks that we'd decided. be <coughs> we so delighted by our exceptional coverage of disks that we were content not to talk about them again until today. But the kinds of disks we're going to be covering today are not the ones that we've talked about in the past and not the ones I usually think of when I think of disks in astronomy. For me, that's usually accretion disks around black holes, for example, Circumstellar disks or protoplanetary disks, or maybe perhaps galactic disks. These types all have dust and gas, which dominates their evolution. But today
2: we're talking about debris disks. Another name for debris disks might be trash disks, as some might know them as. No, no. (laughs) I was one of those people before this recording, but I actually came around. I think debris disks are really cool now.
1: Debris disks were basically my undergrad. Research. So my undergraduate thesis was all about debris disks, and I love debris disks. I think they're the coolest, so I will be team debris disk.
0: <laughs> well, debris disks are different than the other kinds of disks because they have no gas. So they're basically just
2: dust, an entire disk of dust and maybe some pebbles. There's a massive asterisk next to uh, that definition. Mm-hmm. We're going to get into that a little bit later. I'm
0: excited to hear about it. Since we on this podcast absolutely hate dust and would never want to learn facts about it, <laughs> we're going to move right along and get into some expository questions. So, Milena, let's start with a question here. Where are debris disks found in the universe?
1: Mm, around stars. Next question.
2: <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> Done. Ooh, boom. Um, what else you got? Well, they are actually
1: found around <laughs> lots of different kinds of stars. So they've been found around, like, all the different types of main sequence stars, even post-main sequence stars, like white dwarfs. And they're also in the solar system. So pretty much, like, all of the stars. Yeah.
2: There's also at least one example of a debris disk that's been found surrounding a young neutron star. Ooh, fun. Yes. All right. So how do they form and then how do they evolve?
1: So debris disks are thought to be the leftovers of the planet formation process. They're disks of dust and sometimes some trace amounts of gas. That are produced by a collisional cascade in which bodies are continually colliding and grinding to smaller and smaller sizes. So you have more smaller grains, and then you also have larger objects as well within these debris. So there's this like large size distribution. Okay. Because of that, they do need to be continually replenished by additional material. So the grains are continually grinding to smaller and smaller sizes until they reach this blowout size, and then they get rapidly blown out of the system by radiation from the central star once they become so small that they can't really stay in the system any longer, and the star's radiation pushes them out. Mm -hmm. There are generally fewer debris that are known at older ages because of this, because they just end up being depleted of material over time.
2: Yeah, and what's really cool, as you mentioned, Malena, is that the smaller dust grains get blown out. And so what this generally means is that if you do see a late-stage debris disk, it means that you have larger planetesimals in the system that are continually, gravitationally perturbing other bodies and grinding them down to replenish this material. Right.
0: So this transitions nicely to my next question. Which is, how big is the dust inside debris disks? It sounds like there's a smallest possible size, at which point,
2: boom, they get lost. Right, so we can find this out by taking submillimeter observations of the emission from debris disks. And this allows us to construct a spectral energy distribution, or SED, and estimate the smallest dust grain size that is contributing most of the light at these wavelengths. So from these studies, we know that the smallest dust grains are typically a few to a few tens of microns. Mm -hmm. A a micron is a micrometer, which is 10 to the minus 6 meters, which it turns out is just a little bit bigger than the thickness of a red blood cell. Mm. Oh, these are small. Wow.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. super small. And because of the collisional cascade, that means actually most of the material is in these micron-sized grains. So uh, what I was doing in my undergrad research was using the Gemini Planet Imager, which uh, takes images in the near-infrared of stars using a coronagraph. So it blocks out the starlight and then it looks at basically micron wavelengths for whatever is around it so that it can include planets, but it also includes debris disks. And so my undergrad research project was focusing on using a radiative transfer model to actually characterize the composition and dust size distribution in one of these debris disks that was observed with GPI.
0: And is it a power law? (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, it's usually modeled as like, a power law or like a broken set of power laws okay but also you know with a given band of observation so i was using h band which is at i think 1.65 mm-hmm. microns you're only going to be able to see some subset of the grain so like actually these debris disks also have like kilometer sized objects in them there are legitimate asteroids that only an astronomer would call dust Um, but we're not going to be able to probe that as well with something like H band. So you can only see like a part of the dust size distribution with each wavelength range that you look at. Mm -hmm.
2: That also reflects a very common rule of thumb in astronomy, which is that if you can't fit it by a power law, fit it by a broken power law.
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Excellent. (laughs) So Melana, you started to allude
0: to this, uh, but what makes debris disks interesting objects of study?
1: Well, of course, they're part of planetary systems. So, of course, they're amazing. (laughs) And we can learn (laughs) a huge amount from them about those planetary systems. But they're also really interesting in their own right. They allow us to see what the minor planets in different planetary systems are made up of. So we can actually see what that material is, if it's kind of similar to the Kuiper belt or zodiacal dust within the solar system. So those are our debris disks here, and we can actually see if those other systems are similar at all. We can understand how common these massive debris disks are in other systems, and what kinds of systems they're found. So actually, the debris disks that we see in extrasolar systems, they're kind of solar system analogs, but not quite because they actually have to be at least an order of magnitude or two brighter than the solar system to read us would be if we tried to observe them in order for us to see them. So what we're seeing is like super scaled up versions of the Kuiper belt. And it's cool that we're able to see those and try to figure out what kinds of systems you get those like really, really massive Kuiper belts in.
2: And because the evolution from protoplanetary disks to debris disks is super dependent upon the dynamics between the disk and the young star in the system, it's also really interesting to learn about how stars evolve from these systems. So we talked in an earlier episode about pre-main sequence stars, which are not quite stars, but are kind of getting there. These systems are where you start getting debris disks. So they kind of provide this nice little link between star formation and planet formation. Mm -hmm. And once again, you've transitioned
0: beautifully (laughs) into my final question here, which is what can we learn about planet formation
2: from debris disks? Right. So there are a couple of things that you can learn. On the one hand, I mentioned that it's not super well understood, the timescales involved and all of the different processes involved by which you lose all of the dust and evolve from a protoplanetary disk to a late-stage system like a debris disk. So this is really important to be able to shed light on. But also, I mentioned that to get this kind of second-order dust to continually form, you need to have collisions. And this means that you need some big perturbing body, like potentially a binary star companion or a planet. And so, kind of like that expression, where there's smoke, there's fire. In this case, the debris disks are the smoke, and the exoplanets are the fire. So these disks can help shed light on what systems probably have planets and where they're forming.
1: Right. The two debridis that we're going to be talking about in our astrobites actually both have known planets in them, which is pretty cool.
2: Yeah. Mine has multiple.
1: Yeah. And there are known disks that don't have known planets in them, but that do have some really interesting substructures that suggest there might be planets there. So some debridis are multi ringed. So they're like gaps in between the different disks. Um, they're actually disks with like warps in them, with clumps, with spirals. Some of them have these needle like asymmetries, so they have all these crazy dynamical structures that can tell us a lot about what's actually happening within the systems, even if we can't directly see the planets, because if we have really tiny planets in those systems, we can't necessarily see them. Usually, the direct imaging instruments are only going to be able to see, like, Jupiter size plus planets, but we can still learn a lot about what's happening through the dynamics that are occurring within those systems.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, I'm impressed by all the things that debris disks can tell us.
1: Not trash at all.
0: (laughs) 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 All right. So let's get into these astrobites then. Milena, tell us something about these glowing disks that you have in your astrobite.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So my astrobite is called A Ring of Ice and Glows Around Fomalhot. And it's by Michael Hammer about... Two papers, actually, by the same team. Ooh. So one is McGregor et al., and the second is Mantra et al., uh, both from 2017. I think this might be the first astrobite we've covered that was about two papers. So
0: It used to be a more common thing than it is now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, both of the astrobites are about one system. <laughs> so they're both Got about it. the Hot system. Um, and it's all about observations of what I think is probably one of the coolest planetary systems, actually. Fomalhaut is a 440 million year old system that has an incredible, beautiful set of debris disks. And the pictures of Fomalhaut look kind of like an eye because the star is blocked out by the chronograph and the outermost disk ring is projected on the sky so that it looks like this eye-shaped ellipse around the coronagraph. So it's actually really beautiful, the images.
2: Just real quickly, when you say planetary system, is that the same as a debris disk?
1: Uh, There's a planet in the system, but I would say the debris disk is part of the planetary system. So it's just, you know, another thing that exists amidst the planets. Sure. Yeah.
0: So how far away from the central star is the planet and the disk?
1: So the planet is actually just interior to the ring. Oh, okay. And they're pretty far separated from the star, but I don't have an exact number for you but it would probably be like tens to maybe hundreds of AU because the coronagraph is covering up all of the inner parts of the system. And so it's
0: kind of like the Kuiper belt.
1: Yeah. It's sort of like the Kuiper belt, a much more massive version with like a much more massive planet. So it has a Jovian mm-hmm. sized planet. The disc was actually found first. And then there was sort of the question of, Oh, is the disc being carved out by this planet? And so they There were searches for this planet, and um, it was actually discovered just interior to the ring in 2008 using direct imaging data from the Hubble Space Telescope. But although the planet's right inside the ring, its orbital arc suggests that it isn't actually carving out the ring. So there might actually have to be one or more other planets there to produce this large scale disk structure. So although the planet looks like it's kind of in the right place, if you actually follow its orbit, it's not following the right path to carve out the ring. And something really interesting that I learned from this astrobite, actually, is that Fomalhaut is named after the Arabic phrase Fum Hut, That means mouth of the whale, since it's located around <laughs> the mouth of the Pisces constellation. So it's pretty cool. cool. Yeah. And that also means it's like it's part of a constellation. It's one of the brightest stars <laughs> in the sky, which is <laughs> also the reason that we're able to so clearly see all of the structure in the system, we're able to actually see the planet. Uh, it really needs to be a nearby star for us to be able to see that much detail.
0: So what did these authors do to learn more about the disk?
1: Yeah, so two sets of <laughs> analyses, but I'll start with the first paper. The first one is focused on looking at the disk and trying to understand its dynamical structure and the, specifically get constraints on the eccentricity of the disk. So what the authors here did was they took images with the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array or ALMA in order to obtain this really really high resolution image of the full outer Fomalhaut hot debris disk. And the image is really really beautiful. It's this gorgeous glowing ellipse that's surrounding the central star. It's like one of those pictures that you try to put in your outreach talks to show people how pretty <laughs> space is. <laughs> McGregor et al. in the first paper were able to determine the eccentricity of the disk using this image. Um, And it's actually a really cool technique, I think. So dust grains in disks, just like planets, follow Kepler's laws. And so they move more quickly at paracenter, and then they move more slowly at apocenter, where paracenter is their close approach to the star, apocenter is the furthest Mm -hmm. point in the orbit. Past images of the disk that have been taken show that it looks brightest at paracenter, because they've been looking at short wavelengths where the brightness is dominated by the heating of the grains. So when the grains are really close by, then they're hotter and closer to the star, and they look brighter. But if you look at longer wavelengths, you don't get paracenter glow, you instead get apocenter glow. And that's because at millimeter wavelengths, the temperature isn't as important for determining the disk's brightness. Instead, we're seeing differences in flux due to the varying density of the disk particles. So we see a much brighter apocenter, the furthest point of the orbit, in the 1.3 millimeter wavelengths probed by ALMA, whereas we see the paracenter glow at the shorter wavelengths. You can use that to actually constrain the eccentricity of the disk. So they found that it was 0.12. Nice.
2: Are there volatiles in these materials do they break apart as they get closer to the their host star
1: so debris are continually colliding with each other so if there are volatiles and they get released throughout those collisions they would be able to collide at any point in the orbit although if the density is higher farther away maybe you would actually be more likely to get more collisions there
2: but fewer events of them being broken apart by the solar wind from their host star.
1: Ah, uh, Yeah, yeah.
2: I wanted to ask you about the
0: eccentricity. You said 0. 0.12. Mm-hmm. That seems really high. I know like most planets in the solar system are well below 0. 0.1. So how is it stable for a long time with that high of an eccentric orbit?
1: Yeah, so this is why people think there might have to be more planets in the system. At first, the planet that was found looked like it was just a clean, nice solution, you know, giant planet. If it is just carving out that eccentric orbit, then it would sort of make sense that it can hold all of the debris material in that um, orbit as well. But it looks like the planet here isn't quite solving all of our issues. And so there might Mm -hmm. have to be more planets. But if they're there, then they're probably just a bit too small for us to be able to see them right now with direct imaging.
2: What are the odds that this is not a stable configuration? That it's just a a transient configuration for all of the bodies in it, and because we've observed it at this one particular time, we see it in this way, but that's not to say that it will be like this for ages to come. Hmm.
1: That could be possible, but then there's sort of the question of how it got into this confined ring configuration in the first place that is an eccentric ring. So it's not completely out of the question, but I think it's unlikely that you would have such a narrow ring that is just unstable.
0: Gotcha. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's go to the second paper then. What was the focus on here?
1: The second paper was looking not at the dynamical configuration, but instead at the composition of the disc. So Here, Mantra et al. were measuring how much CO gas is present in the disks to understand how much cometary material is present in the fomal-hot system.
2: Hold on. So we've been talking about debris disks as these systems devoid of gas. So where must this gas be coming from?
1: when the different bodies within the debris disk collide with each other, then they can release some trace amounts of volatiles. So it isn't like a set disk that just has a huge amount of gas like a protoplanetary disk is. But similar to the way that in the Kuiper Belt, we have lots of objects with volatiles. And when comets get close to the sun, then they start to outgas those volatiles. You similarly also have volatiles in debris disks that are, again, sort of the analogs of these Kuiper Belts And I'm specifically saying they're analogs of the Kuiper belt because the ones that we see are often very far from the star. So they're a little bit less like the main belt in the solar system and closer to the Kuiper belt.
0: Right. That's my question. What defines the Kuiper belt volatiles is they're all ices, or sometimes these comets are referred to as a dirty snowball where it's more Mm. dirt than snow. But would this carbon monoxide be close enough to the star to be in gas, or I'm assuming this is locked away in solid
1: yeah so this is very much locked away in solid this disc is pretty distant from the host star so it's not going to be regularly outgassing it's more Um, just when you have these comets colliding with each other then they'll release some amount of volatiles just through the collisions
0: but the volatiles that come out are they frozen get heated enough to become gas and sublimate or do they come out as frozen and then maybe end up in the disc just sort of on their own
1: They create some trace amount of gas that is sublimated. Okay. Yeah. But it's not a huge amount, so it's like certainly nothing like a protoplanetary disk. Okay, got it. But you're still able to see it in some debris disks. You don't see gas in every debris disk, but in some of them.
2: Yeah, I had read that the material gets vaporized upon collision. Mm. So yeah, it's a sublimation process, it seems like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so any of the CO that we would see in the Fomalhaut system, it's a bit too old to maintain any CO gas from its primordial protoplanetary disk. So it would have really had to come from colliding cometary material that releases both CO and CO2 ice from the comets into this sort of vaporized form. And the authors ended up finding that the fraction of CO or CO2 ice within the Fomalhaut disk material is actually consistent with that of values measured for a few solar system comets. So that's pretty cool. It's kind of direct evidence that the material in the FOMO hot disc might be compositionally analogous to the solar system comets. Yeah. So that's just like a very quick overview of both of these two papers, but I thought they were both really exciting. And I'm a big fan of how much I learned from a single astrobite So <laughs> it covered so much material.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I'm surprised to learn that there's anything other than dust in these discs. So that's a pretty interesting update.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're called debris dust because they are definitely dominated by dust, but there's a little bit of gas sometimes.
2: And the search for gas is going to be the subject of my astrobite, but I have a feeling that we have something in this episode that comes first. We do. (laughs) And now it's time for our bi-weekly space
0: dust noise for scientific advancements in all disks known to humankind.
1: Wow. That's a lot of disks.
0: It's a lot of noise. (laughs) so i actually wanted to play us the sound of a debris disc which is so exciting that i think we had to just just launch right into it without any is it a
2: sonification
0: no it's the actual disc itself huh Oops, I'm, I'm sorry. That was... No, wait, that was the right sound. Yeah, it's just trash.
1: <laughs> what?
0: No, was... I'm just joking.
1: <laughs> I was like, are there bottles in these debris? What's happening?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's just that's just the sound of trash being taken out, because debris is,
2: is another word for trash. First Malena dupes us with her previous face sound, and now Will's duping us here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. Get ready for the next space sound when I'm hosting. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oof. Okay, no, serious space sound though. Close your eyes because you're going to want to guess. any guesses
1: that sounded more like a debris disk to me i don't know <laughs> although i don't know how would you even sonify a debris disk?
2: well so this is tough because sonifications can really throw you off i mm. it sounded atmospheric to me but that could just be the choice in mm. sonification
1: i feel like at this point i'm just wrong all the time i'm gonna say um, <laughs> galaxy <laughs>
2: just galaxy (laughs) (laughs) it's the word galaxy sonified the idea the concept of a galaxy uh i'm gonna say it's the i don't know i don't know pick a non-galaxy
1: something else
2: atmosphere of somebody in our solar system Okay, that's actually pretty close, Alex.
0: <laughs> yes, too specific, huh, Milena? Milena said galaxy and owned like 95% of the universe, and she couldn't get that one. Well, I mean, it is deep inside a galaxy.
1: Yeah, I was still right.
0: <laughs> okay. You're yeah, right. next time I'll just guess universe. <laughs> the universe. <laughs> this is called auroral kilometric radiation, and it is radiation, it's a sonification of radiation emitted by cyclotron electrons in Earth's magnetic field above the poles where the aurora are produced.
1: You said kilometric. Is it like some something to do with kilometers somehow?
0: You know, I'll be honest, I don't know. It's not. <laughs> I tried to look it up, and I couldn't find a derivation of the term.
1: <laughs> That's fair.
0: <laughs> cyclotron radiation we actually did mention in an episode a while back That is slow spiraling electrons as opposed to synchrotron radiation which is relativistic, fast spiraling electrons. And the interesting thing about this is these electrons, the radiation they produce is easily absorbed by the ionosphere of Earth. So it never reaches the ground. You can't look at it. You have to send a spacecraft right nearby into it. And so this sound is produced by a pair of measurements made by magnetometers. On two spacecraft, and this was actually taken somewhere around 20 years ago, but it sounds really cool in stereo because the spacecraft are in slightly different places. So it's sort mm-hmm. of like listening with binoculars, I think is a cool analogy.
1: So these are like Earth-orbiting satellites then?
0: Correct. I, they're long since retired. This was about a 20-year-old mission or so.
1: Okay. Very cool.
2: The radiation is typically in the kilohertz range, right? Like 50 to 500 kilohertz or something. So I wonder if that's where they get the kilometric name from.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. My calculator brain says that that one kilohertz is something like six kilometers. So sounds about right.
0: Oh, so it's referring to the wavelength being in the kilometers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: got to be. Nice. (laughs) All right. Thank you to Milena's calculator brain.
1: Oh, you got it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Elena, I have some code, some Python code. I was hoping your calculator brain could just
2: debug for me. I was wondering in grade school, like, did you get caught for cheating? Did they, I don't know. What do they do about your calculator brain?
1: I don't know. I am who I am.
2: (laughs) That's beautiful. All right. And with that, it's time to move on.
0: (laughs) Alex, why don't you tell us about an astrobyte
2: with some disks that are a little humid? Yeah, yeah, you got it. Well, there's really only one disc that I'm going to be talking about. That's Beta Pictoris, which is around 20 million years old. It's called Beta Pic for short. So Beta Pic is very popular because of its confirmed exoplanet, and actually recently a second has been confirmed. And it turns out the most recent one confirmed is the closest planet to its star ever photographed. It's about the distance away from the star that the asteroid belt is from our own sun. Ooh,
1: direct imaging advances.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's super exciting. And in addition, it has a debris disk, of course, of dust left over from its planet formation days. But a bright infrared excess has also been observed in Beta BetaPix disk that has been attributed to carbon monoxide gas.
1: Mm-hmm. Same as in Fomalhaut.
2: Nice. Yeah, I was going to ask, is the gas produced in the same way? Great question. So, as we know, the gas is unlikely to be primordial because the lifetime of carbon monoxide gas in a disk is only around 50 years. So, a similar mechanism has been proposed to explain this gas, that it's probably second generation gas released from collisions between the rocky bodies in the system. I love Tucci gas. (laughs) (laughs) Now... If these bodies are anything like solar system comets, then the carbon monoxide is probably trapped in water ice as well. And that means that if you're getting this carbon monoxide dust from the collisions, you should also get water vapor. So these authors went searching for signatures of water vapor in BetaPix disk.
1: So they're looking directly for the molecules.
2: Yes, correct. Uh, it's
0: got to be an eyedropper, right? They're just going to take a little <laughs> bit out and then put it on a slide.
2: They went outside and squinted really hard. <laughs> it turns out there are strong telluric lines from our own atmosphere. It has a lot of water vapor in it. So this is practically impossible to do from the ground. So the authors scanned through archival data from the heterodyne instrument for the far infrared, or Hi Fi, aboard the Herschel Space Observatory. And they searched for an emission line from a particular rotational transition of water.
0: And how do they identify water in the data that they get?
2: Right. So the short answer is that they didn't. Oh. So the authors did not find any evidence of this particular transition, but they did what any good scientist might do in this circumstance. They used a radiative transfer code, in this case one called RADx, to convert their upper limits on the emission line flux to an upper limit on how much water there might be in this disk.
1: Did they just look at one line? I'm just curious, Like, were there other lines that they could have checked just to make sure that they were all consistent with the absence of water?
2: It's a good question and I don't have a great answer. I I know they did look at just this one particular line Mm -hmm. and I'm sure they might've had a reason for it, but I don't have a good answer for it.
1: Yeah, maybe it was just like the one that has the least confusion with other molecules that also have lines nearby or something.
2: Or yeah, maybe it's the strongest signature mm-hmm. or something like that. Okay. So it turns out to do this, you have to make some educated guesses about how many electrons there are in the system, because you need a mechanism for exciting the hydrogen molecule to get it to emit this particular transition. So they made some guesses about the number density in the system and the temperature of the system and read in a grid of models. And for each of those models, they derived their estimated water masses. And their final upper limit that they get is around 10 to the 17 kilograms of water in the disk. Again, this is an upper limit. But they argue that the results suggest a carbon monoxide to water ratio that's around what you find in our own solar system. So this could be a nice little check, but of course it's an upper limit, so there could be no water at all in the disk, and they just don't know.
1: So basically what they found is that there isn't like a crazy, enormous amount of water, not to say that there isn't the same amount of water in the solar system.
2: Exactly, exactly. And actually, in hindsight, maybe this is not entirely surprising of a result. The timescale of water vapor in a disk like this is predicted to be only like three days or so compared to carbon monoxide's 50 years. So it's possible they just looked at it at the wrong time Mm -hmm. when there wasn't some very short forming water vapor in the system. Or it's also possible that the comets in Beta Pic just have a composition that's different from those in our own solar system that we don't really have an analog for yet.
1: Right. I would think that just means <laughs> maybe the collisions aren't happening often enough that it's replenishing water fast enough that you'd be able to see it. Is that right?
2: It's possible. Yeah, for sure. And that could also potentially set a limit on the number of bodies of a certain size. Right. Containing these uh, volatile compositions.
1: Super interesting.
0: Well, Alex, thanks for bringing us that exciting bite. It's good to know that there isn't a ton of water somewhere we didn't expect to find water. <laughs> yeah.
1: Fun fact, Beta Pic is an edge-on debris disk. And that was the same type that I studied. And they're the best. Because everything is kind of like all along the line of sight. So you see like everything added together and you can study at extra high resolution.
2: But I would also think that would lead to lots of confusion between the different elements of it.
1: Oh yeah, it's super confusing trying to figure out the geometry of the disk because you're just looking at a line in your data. (laughs) Um, But you can't actually get... I imagine it'd probably be a lot harder to try to figure out how much water there is in Fomalhaut because you can't just integrate the entire signal together the same way you can for an edge disk. Sure, sure.
2: Unless it had a crazy amount of water that we don't expect.
1: That's true. It's possible.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So let's move along to
0: our one-sentence summaries. Uh, Milena, lead us off.
1: Bommelhot is a beautiful, icy, eccentric disk that has provided us with a wealth of information about what extrasolar systems look like, what they're made of, and how they compare with our own solar system. Beautiful. And Alex?
2: Although radiated transfer modeling and an exhaustive search of archival data has only raised new questions, future instruments may really give us a better pick. Of Beta Pay. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> Thank you.
0: All right, so let's start with a discussion point here. Debris disks are thought of as the leftover when a planetary system has formed, when the gas is gone, and we joke that it's the trash that's left behind, the dust, but I mean, clearly there's some very interesting science. What other areas of astronomy? What other stuff in the universe is left over that we we might think is boring, but is probably not so boring?
1: I feel like everything is leftovers in a way. Hot Jupiters tend to form in metal-rich environments. It's just leftovers of supernova, you know.
2: Hmm. We're leftovers of supernova. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are we doing interesting things? You decide. <laughs> it's
1: just a big recycling project. Everything is leftovers, right?
2: All right, so let's reframe the discussion. It's
0: not, it's not leftovers. Let's reframe it in terms of active versus passive. Debris uh. disks are passive. Um, a protoplanetary disk is active. A star is active. A white dwarf may be passive. Certainly a star-forming galaxy is active.
2: A red and dead galaxy we would think of as passive. Hmm.
1: Huh.
2: Yeah, I'm maybe making a distinction in my head between objects that are passive intrinsically and objects that are passive because we really can't easily observe the ways in which they're active. Yeah, it's a fair point. For red and dead galaxies, for example, they may have an influx of material later down the line to form stars, but right now they're not doing much. Whereas in objects like debris disks, it seems like there are very active processes about this kind of grinding down and forming new dust and potentially new gas that's constantly happening, but... It's just not that easy to observe at all. So we see them as just this kind of leftover material. It's not really doing anything.
1: Yeah. I feel like this identification system that you defined as active versus passive is almost sort of like things that are growing bigger versus things that are grinding smaller where like, like even inside of stars are <laughs> like growing built- bigger elements, even if the star is pretty much staying the same size. Um, whereas in a debris disc, like material is continuing to grind smaller and, will sort of disappear over time um yeah so it's sort of interesting making that distinction versus alex sort of had a sort of separate idea that was more of like are the objects continuing to interact and evolve in some way either dynamically or compositionally um, as opposed to staying the same and i think you could sort of think of either one as your definition of active versus passive
2: i guess it depends on what you define as an enclosed system of course there are lots of things interacting and there are some systems in which some parts are passive because other things that are active are turning off other processes that might otherwise be active. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of like quenching star formation from a central AGN of a galaxy that's blowing out hot material and the AGN you might think of as being a really active body, whereas the galaxy you might think of as more passive.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. Debris can be kind of active. Like there have been some really cool studies recently that have found from Just looking at the spectra of white dwarfs, um, enrichment of certain metals that you wouldn't expect to see if they hadn't been deposited into the white dwarf atmosphere quite recently. So generally, material sinks into white dwarfs on pretty rapid timescales. And that's kind of an indication of actually debris disks or some sort of asteroidal material that's continually falling in. There was actually a disintegrating asteroid that was found at one point that was just sort of like orbiting a white dwarf. I think that was a nature paper a few years ago. So it's sort of active. It's kind of dying. I'm not really sure if that counts as active or passive. (laughs) But it's really cool. It's like stuff is certainly happening.
2: Yeah, I think we also tend to think of the things as active as those that are bright in the frequencies at which we typically observe. So if there's something that, I don't know, a really energetic collision between bodies, but it doesn't produce a lot of light, we might think of that as a passive body just because we're not privy to the mechanisms.
0: Yeah, so let's let's explore that a little bit. We talked about some ways in which debris disks are tough to observe. Mm-hmm. And also, it sounds like the real challenge is observing large asteroids or small-sized planets that might be near the disk. And in that case, the disk sort of illuminates the planets by giving us evidence that they're there. Mm-hmm. Imagine all of the planetary systems with interesting asteroids and small planets that we have no chance of seeing because there is no debris disk.
1: Right. The asteroids that we presented are very biased towards the very brightest debris disk that mm-hmm, exists. Mm-hmm. That is not normal. Most of the debris disks, we just see a bump in the spectral energy distribution at the infrared wavelengths, and we say, oh, there's probably a debris disk there, and we could never resolve it because it's too far away.
0: Mm, so these are the pretty <laughs> ones.
1: Yeah, so these are the pretty ones that you can actually get pictures of, but there are not that many of those. It's like in the tens.
2: I mentioned Beta Pic, this really beautiful debris disk that may or may not have water. This is one of the fabulous four, as they're so-called, <laughs> these kind of beautiful, perfect examples of debris disks that have been discovered. The pictures are really, really nice of them if you want to go look them up. We can link them in the show notes as well. Sure.
1: What are the other three? Fomalhaut's probably one of them, right?
2: Fomalhaut is one of the other ones. Beta Pic, Vega, and Epsilon Eridani. Okay, cool. Very cool.
1: I didn't even realize Vega had a debris disk. I'm embarrassed that I didn't know that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we got to scrap the episode.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One last question before we wrap up. The evolution of the solar system includes a period called the Late Heavy Bombardment, which I believe is when a lot of material from the outer solar system, the Kuiper Belt, smashed into the inner solar system planets, providing the raw materials that would later produce water and other volatiles found on Earth, Venus, Mars, which would later lose most of them, uh, Mercury, which never really maintained them, but mostly Earth, right? That's where we got our water from. That's the leading theory. The debris disks that we've seen and talked about, are those way past the period where they can deliver water or maybe could they have already delivered water to a planet in the interior of the disk?
1: I think it depends on what would initiate that delivery. So in the solar system that was caused by, we believe, some migration of the planets as the protoplanetary disk was dissipating and as the planets Mm -hmm. were forming. So if that's the case in other systems as well, then this probably would have happened before the stage of most debris that we're seeing now, because we're seeing like most of the gas from the protoplanetary disk is gone. Um, That's not really still happening and perhaps volatiles have already been delivered. Uh, With that said, that's not the only way that you can have something like the late heavy bombardment. You could have like a stellar flyby or something else that causes material to be thrown inwards. So it's possible to happen afterwards. It's just I think it's maybe if we assume that the solar system is kind of the standard for what happens, then maybe it's more likely that it would have happened in the past.
0: It's a dangerous assumption,
2: though.
1: Yeah, it is a dangerous (laughs) assumption. It's all we really know. But, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not.
2: I also want to push back against that theory just a little bit, because now this is tapping into some of the work that I did at Los Alamos during my uh, post-bac. Nice. Was investigating inheritance of water and when it might form in the universe. And actually, there is some debate about how much water would be inheritable from the parent molecular cloud that was the predecessor to any of this material. So if it's possible that planets can just form and already have a significant amount of water from their predecessor, basically, before any of the potential bombardment can occur, then it's possible that even if a late heavy bombardment does not happen in these systems, their planets could still form with a lot of water.
1: Yeah, I know it's not, necessarily the case that the late heavy bombardment is right. Honestly, all the planet formation model stuff with the solar system, if you actually look at it pretty closely, it looks pretty fine-tuned, and Mm
2: -hmm.
1: it's just that if you try to figure out another explanation, the way that we got to the current model is just like process of elimination of every possible other theory, but it does look like a very specific thing to have happened, so I don't know. Maybe it's right, but maybe there's some simpler model we'll be able to come up with someday to explain
0: it all. Absolutely. In astronomy, fine-tuned is not a compliment.
2: <laughs> it's true. But I mean, like you mentioned, Molina, it's fine-tuned for a reason. We need it to be able to explain our own solar system. We know that our solar system exists and any model that fails to reproduce what we observe is not a good theory. Yeah. So it makes sense that we would want to make some general assumptions about what a theory needs and then tweak it to be able to explain our yeah. observations.
1: No, I think that makes sense. The question is how much we can assume that that actually extends to other systems if we sure. assume like a very sure. specific scenario for the solar system and not sure.
2: It's like overtraining on our system in a sense, right. and then applying it to test data outside of our solar system, and it might perform very poorly.
1: That's a very machine learning way to put it.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And with that, we will conclude episode 54 of Astra Sound bites, Dusting Off the Discs. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the bites, papers, and sounds we discussed today. As you all know, Astra Sound bites is a bespoke, artisanal, small batch, <laughs> handmade <laughs> podcast with a hometown feel. Uh. Let your friends know about the warm hospitality you experience just by listening. <laughs> on perhaps Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. It never hurts to give us a rating, wink, wink, or send an email. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Yeah, I probably shouldn't call it the bi-weekly space garbage noise.